12 and 13. It's page number 957 of the Pew Bibles. It's the second last book of the Old Testament. I wonder when you last heard a sermon on the book of Zechariah. Before we begin, let's first pray and ask for God's help to understand his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word tonight, we pray that we would grasp the urgency and the certainty of Zechariah's message. And we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to apply your word to our hearts. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many things in life that we can hope for. We can hope for a great summer. Sunshine. Sand. And ice creams. And we might just get that. Britain, apparently, is in for a scorcher this year. And wouldn't it be great if that actually happens? And maybe you're living in hope for the Scotland football team. Maybe you were hoping that somehow, just somehow, Scotland would qualify for the 2006 World Cup. And that is what you call a misplaced hope. Sorry, but it's true. And today is the Edinburgh Marathon. Has anyone here done a marathon before? You have? Well done. One person. That's good. Well, over 11,000 people were hoping just to cross the finish line, hoping that all their training, going to the gym and eating healthy foods would finally pay off. There are many things in life that we can hope for. Well, in Zechariah, we meet a group of people, the Jewish people, who are seeking hope, real hope, lasting hope, It was the year 520 BC, 18 years before they had been set free from captivity in Babylon. It was Cyrus, the king of Persia, who had conquered Babylon in 538 BC. And the Persian Empire was now a powerful empire. Darius was now their king. And its borders were immense. And you can see this on the map. Its borders stretched all the way from India to Greece, and from Armenia to Egypt. And so with great joy, the Jews have returned to Jerusalem, determined to live to please God when they returned. But times have been hard. And in Hebrew, the name Jerusalem may mean the city of peace. But that certainly had not been their experience as they sought to rebuild their city and rebuild the temple. And in this book, we meet them, 18 years on. Little construction has taken place, although services are taking place. Their numbers are diminished. They have enemies on every side. And there is apparently no leader to guide them. And the morale is all but broken. Picture them, huddled below Jerusalem in the valleys to the south, 
waiting for someone to come to the fore to restore their hope because they are discouraged and they are disillusioned. And then someone comes, someone named Zechariah. And he comes with a message from God. It was a message of hope. Hope for the people of God. For God has not forgotten his covenant people. And that's what the name Zechariah means. It means the Lord remembers. It is a message of hope. And in 2005, that's what many people are still searching for. Hope. Hope that will last. As an old Scottish proverb says, were it not for hope, the heart would break. And tonight, we've heard from Josephine about Africa. Millions of people today are dying from AIDS. And it can make us all think about the big questions of life. Questions such as, what is life all about? Is there any meaning to life? Why am I here on this planet Earth? Where is my life going? And does God really care about me? Well, Zechariah comes and he gives us an answer to these questions. He comes with a message from God and he tells us how we can live with a future hope, a genuine hope. So let's start by looking at Zechariah. Who exactly was he? Let's turn to Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 1. Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 1. And here's what we find. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah son of Berechiah, and the son of Ido. And so we find that Zechariah was a prophet in the second year of Darius I, and that is 520 BC. And that means he was a contemporary of the prophet Haggai, who we heard about two weeks ago. And he was a messenger of encouragement. Zechariah comes along and he says, whatever you're currently going through, Be encouraged, for there is a certain hope that awaits the people of God. And now we pick up the story in chapter 12. And here we see how we can live with a future hope. How we can live with that rock-solid assurance for the future in our own life. And here's how it begins. It starts with a problem to confront. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Bob Geldof, as you know, caused a major problem. It was a problem for Edinburgh City Council. As you know, he wants one million people to come to Edinburgh for the Make Poverty History campaign. And on Monday, he launched what he called Sale 8. And that is, he wants boat owners along the English Channel to pick up French passengers so they can join the demonstration. And it's going to be a continental adventure, Bob Geldof said. But it's also going to be a big problem for the council. However, there is another problem. And this problem applies to all of us. And it's a lot more serious. 
It is the reality of our sin. Now here in Zechariah, we find that Jerusalem, God's city, was surrounded by enemies. Over in chapter 9, verse 8, they're described as marauding forces. And notice what they're doing. It is the essence of this problem of sin in our lives. You see, at the heart of it, they were opposing God. They were rebelling against God in his world. And so what is their fate? Well, Zechariah tells us, if you look at chapter 12, verse 9, this is what God says to Zechariah. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. They will be destroyed. And that is their fate. And it's here we find a key phrase in Zechariah. It's the phrase, on that day. And it's found 16 times in chapters 12 to 14. So what day is Zechariah speaking about here? It's this. It is the day that God has set when he will judge the world. Now, when I was younger, I had top ten lists. Did you ever do that? Well, I did. I had top ten lists for absolutely everything. A top ten list of my favourite TV programmes. And Grange Hill and Blue Peter were right up there. A top ten list of my favourite football players. A top ten list of my favourite food. Pizza. And I even had a top ten list of my favourite dogs. Don't ask me why. And sometimes, subconsciously, we can have something like a top ten list in our minds. And it's a list of people who really do deserve God's judgment. Really horrible people. People like Adolf Hitler. He definitely would be on that list. And Joseph Stalin. He had imprisoned or killed millions of his own people. He deserves to be judged for that. And that is true. But it doesn't end there. This is quite a sobering thought to think about. The Bible tells us that we all, all of us, deserve God's judgment. Listen to what Romans 2.23 says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, sometimes we can think our greatest problem in life is our boss. Or maybe even our employees. Exams. Rush hour traffic. Monday mornings when your alarm clock goes off. Being broke. Not having that perfect figure. But that is not our greatest problem. Our greatest problem in life is the reality of our sin. And we must see that. Every year in this church, we're on a Christianity Explored course. And we explore together what it means to be a Christian. Now, the motto of the course is, we are more wicked than we ever realised, but more loved than we ever dreamed. And it's a tough message. But that's what God is saying here in the book of Zechariah. And it's here we see something of the nature of God. He is a God of burning holiness. 
It's like the image we find in chapter 12, verse 6, if you look down. We have this picture of a flaming torch burning up sin. And that's what God must do. He will always punish and destroy wrongdoing. Recently, in the press, we've been thinking much about global poverty in places such as Africa. One of the most influential Christians in tackling issues of world poverty is someone called John Stott. He was the rector of a church in London called All Souls Church. And he was the president of the Christian aid organisation, Cheer Fund. And many people would describe John Stott as a good person. This is what John Stott says about the reality of sin in his own life. Listen to this. Here's what he says. My perceptions of God and of myself, however distorted, convince me that in myself I am completely unfit to spend eternity in his presence. And he continues. Hell the deserving sinner sounds an absurdly antiquated phrase. But I believe it is the sober truth. The reality of sin in our life. And it's here in Zechariah that we find a massive warning from God. The compassionate creator God. We need cleansed from our sin. We must find cleansing. Question. How? How do I find this cleansing? How do I make sure that on that day, when God intervenes decisively in either blessing or judgment, that I'm on the right side, that I'm on the side of blessing? If you look at chapter 14, verse 11, how do I make sure that I will be secure in Jerusalem among God's people when that day comes? How do I do that? Well, it's here we find a solution to receive. Look down at one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. Chapter 13, verse 1. And it's the solution to this coming judgment. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Now, Jerusalem was on a hill and there was no water up in that hill. And it was exhausting work. Just imagine it, lugging the water up to the temple so the ritual cleansing could occur. And then the midday sun in the Middle East People must have longed for their thirst to be quenched. This week in Edinburgh has been a fairly hot week, and it has been great, hasn't it? It's been tremendous. But unfortunately, back then, there were no cans of Diet Coke you could buy. And so the thought of a fountain in the middle of Jerusalem was something that would be relished. It was a wonderful thought. However, this fountain brings far more than just water. It has the potential to cleanse from sin and impurity. It can wash away not just the dirt of the day, it can wash away a lifetime of sin. Now, there are at least three things we can say about this fountain. Three observations. Firstly, God opens the fountain. It all starts with God. Zechariah wants to remind us that God is our creator. In chapter 12, verse 1, 
we are reminded about the greatness of God. He is the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him. Mark Boda, in his NIV application commentary, explains what that means for us. He writes, Because God is the creator, he has a prerogative, power, and passion to save and judge humanity. Think about this. It's an amazing thought. It is our creator who has opened that fountain. A fountain bringing cleansing and healing. Here is a river. The prophet Ezekiel looked forward to in Ezekiel 47. A river which flows out of the sanctuary of God. Now currently we live in Dunfermline and so that makes me a fifer. It's true. And every weekday I'll drive down to Inverkeven train station and I'll pick up the Metro newspaper and I'll take the train over the fourth rail bridge. And as I go across, I'll often look down and see the waters off the river forth below. Now in Zechariah, we find the water of life coming from God himself. A river that brings healing and forgiveness and restoration and cleansing to a guilt-ridden world. Here is the means by which a human being can be right with God on that day. Notice the word opens here in verse 1. It means to open permanently. This fountain goes on washing away our sin. And it never, ever fails. So then, where is that fountain? Where can I find this fountain that will wash away my sin? Where can I find cleansing? Well, if we turn to John 19, verse 33, this is what we find. They'll be on the screen. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Here's the fountain. Christ's blood is the fountain. Here it is, coming out of the side of Jesus. Here is the fountain of blood and water. And it's the only way, the only way we could be cleansed from our sin totally and forever. In verse 37 of John chapter 19, we read these words. They will look on the one they have pierced. And now if you look down at Zechariah 12 verse 10, what do we find? And I will pour out in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Listen to this. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. We are being pointed to the cross. And also in chapter 13, verse 3, if you look down, the word pierced is the same word used for the stab in this verse. And it is a death blow. Jesus died for me. As William Cooper wrote in his famous hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Now notice here in chapter 13 verse 1 you see those key words again. On that day. 
And this time, it's speaking about the cross. So why? It's because Zechariah saw Christ's first coming and his second coming as simply one glorious event. And this message is central to these verses. If you look at chapter 13, verse 7, here we see the sword of justice coming down. Not on me, but on God's shepherd, Jesus Christ. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. You see, I am the one who is found wanted on the scales, but the sword of God's justice comes down into Christ. Jesus died for me. He is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And now, the third thing to know about this fountain is this. Anyone can come to this fountain. One of the great things about Edinburgh is that thousands of tourists come to this city every year. Why? Because Edinburgh is a fabulous city and we are not biased. And every year, thousands of tourists of all nationalities will walk along the Royal Mile or along Princes Street watching festival performers and trying out the good old British fish and chips. And if they're really brave, they might even try haggis, which tastes wonderful. And here's what you find in Zechariah. People from all different nationalities can come to this fountain. It is open to everyone. In John chapter 1, we read these words. Yet to all who received him, that is Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, if you turn to Zechariah chapter 9, just very briefly, we find something here which I think is wonderful. Okay? Read about God removing Israel's enemies from Aram, Phoenicia, and Philistia. Verses 1 to 8. Okay? But notice verse 7. It says, Those who are left will belong to our God. So what is that telling us? It's telling us that God will form a remnant from these nations. One day the gospel will spread out into all the world. God's love is wide enough to encompass, to encompass the whole world. And finally, we come to a message of eternal hope. Hope for all who come to this fountain. We have a future to embrace. You may know the moving story of Cassie Bernal. Cassie Bernal was an all-American teenage girl. And she was someone whose life was completely transformed when she had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. When she came to that fountain and she was wonderfully saved. Now Cassie and her parents lived in Denver, Colorado. But back on April 20th, 1999, her parents were told Cassie would not be coming home from school. Two fellow students had walked into their high school armed with automatic weapons and they were intent on killing as many as they could before taking their own lives. One of the the killers put a gun to Cassie's head and he asked her, do you believe in God? She replied very simply, yes. It was to be her last word. Just a week before Cassie's death, Cassie was talking with her mother at the kitchen table. 
And somehow, they got onto the subject of death. This is what Kathy said to her mother. She said, Mom, I'm not afraid to die, because I'll be in heaven. You see, Kathy had a future to embrace. She looked ahead to that day, when she would be with Christ forever. On that day, when Christ will return to this earth. And that's what Zechariah is telling us here. He says, look to that day when Christ will return to the Mount of Olives, when the people of God will live under the rule of their Messiah King. And here is the Messiah King, chapter 14, verse 3. If you look down, it says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. And remember, it was from the Mount of Olives that he ascended in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. And here Zechariah confirms that Jesus will come back to the Mount of Olives when he returns. For Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. As we sang tonight, death is dead, love has won, Christ has conquered, and we shall reign with him, for he lives. Christ is risen from the dead. And that is wonderful. What a future. And what a hope. Christ will return as the victorious king. Triumphant. As chapter 14 verse 9 says. You know what it says? The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord. And his name the only name. In Revelation 21, we get a glimpse of what life will be like in this new Jerusalem with Christ. Listen to this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Tonight we have looked at what it means to have a future hope. There is a problem to confront, our sin. There is a solution to receive. There is a fountain. And there is a future to embrace. Those who have been cleansed in that fountain can look to that day when Christ will return and live in the light of it. And so in conclusion, this leaves me with two basic thoughts. One, my sin must be very serious if this is what has to happen to God's Son so I can be cleansed. It must be very serious. But secondly, listen to this. What this points to is, catch this, I must be loved very much by God. I must be loved very much. If he is prepared to send his son to die for me, then he must put great value on me. So let me ask you, if you're a Christian, are you conscious of the joy of sin's forgiven. Say that again. Are you conscious of the joy of sins forgiven?
if we're aware that our open sins and our secret sins have been forgiven, there will be great joy in my Christian life. Great joy. And it is central to Christian living. If you're not yet a Christian, can I ask you, are you ready to face the future? Are you ready for that coming day? In the last chapter of the Bible, we find these words. The Spirit and the Bride say come. And let him who hears say come. Listen, whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Let's pray.